I want to um, pick up where we started talking about a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Then I want to talk today about the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the maturing of the fruit and how important it is that fruit matures. We discussed how important it is that we appreciate that the Holy Spirit is a person, being the third person of the Trinity. Uh, many times the Holy Spirit is referred to as an it because people don't, don't know how to relate to a Holy Spirit. They know how to relate to a father. They know how to relate to a son. But they don't know how to re relate to a Holy Ghost. Uh, but it's clear that the Holy Spirit is a person just as much as God the Father is a person, just as much as Father, Jesus the Son is a person. And that the Holy Spirit is the active agent, if you will, of God on the earth today. When Jesus died and rose, and then when he ascended, before he ascended, he said, go wait and tarry on the Holy Spirit and I will send him and he will become an advocate or a paraclete or a comforter and the Holy Spirit will come and be with you. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a spirit, not in the form of a man, but in the form of a spirit because the Holy Spirit is, omnis uh, is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, meaning that he is all-knowing, can be every place at the same time, and is all-powerful. Whereas Jesus, as a man, was limited in his ability to be one place at a time. So if God was going to accomplish what he needs to or he wants to on earth, he needed to send his spirit to be with all men on earth. And that's what the Holy Spirit's role is today. So the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, but he is meant to be with each one of us individually and personally as well as corporately. So the messages that we're on over the next few weeks are to help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. See, we believe that the Bible is not date-stamped. The, the Bible is not time-dependent. The Bible was written over uh, a, number of, a number of thousands of years, over a number of different authors, and it is relevant today as it was then. So there is nothing here that says the Holy Spirit's role is different today than it was at the early church when the Holy Spirit was, was given. The Holy Spirit was given for a purpose and for a reason, and he's just as important today as he was then. So it's important for us to understand who he is and what his role is. And so as we move into the discussion of the fruit of the Spirit in a believer's life, we must understand another very important aspect of what it means to be a Christian. I've really been um, impressed this week especially that we need to understand that the Christian's life if we're clearly to understand what the fruit of the Spirit is, if we're clearly to understand what the gifts of the Spirit are and how they manifest in a person's life for, for them personally and also for the edifying and building up of the church, we need to, re we need to recognize uh, the, the, the nature of a Christian's life today. We've moved into a time of belief and teaching that is quite a bit different than what it was in the early church. In our society today, many of the messages that are spoken have turned into a prosperity message and a message that God is going to make your life better today. That if you need to improve your life, if you're having a hard time in life, then turn to Jesus and Jesus will make your life better. Well, in many areas I agree with that. But that particular 
concept can be missing a very important aspect and it can bring much damage and misinformation into the, into the church if we just look at God's role today is to make our life better today. For the fact that for me to accept Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, clearly he gives me a promise for eternity. But many of us take that guarantee that we're going to have a better life today because of that. Well, can I tell you that that's not in the Bible at all? In fact, the moment that you accept Christ, can I tell you that you're, you are now going to be in warfare? That you're going to be in a battle now? Because you are now warring against the king and the ruler and the authority and the princes of this air, which is darkness, which is Satan. And as soon as you take on the role of Christendom, as soon as you say, I'm going to follow Christ, you are at, automatically at war with the enemy of this world. So for us to tell you that when you became, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that all your problems are going to go away, do you know that I'm lying to you if I say that? Yeah. And that is, for, if, if I was to say that, as in all good intentions, all good intentions is to have you have an understanding and a relationship with Jesus, but if I tell you that and leave you there, then I'm lying to you because, and I'm setting you up for major disappointment in your life. Because the first time that a problem comes, what are you going to think about me? What are you going to think about the message that I told you? That if you accept Jesus, all your problems are going to go away, and you have a problem in your life, what are you going to say? What are you going to believe? You see, we just prayed for a, a number of people here that are Christians, and they have problems in their life. So how, how, what kind of a double speak are we speaking? If we say that by the moment you accept Jesus, your problems go away, then why are we praying for these people? Why are there problems then that they're going through if they have Jesus in their life? Well, because the Bible says that the Lord will help us get through the problems of our life, but he won't deliver us from the problems in our life. We're all going to have to deal with sickness, we're all going to have to deal with heartache, with death, with discouragement, with job losses, with children that are either good or not so good. We're all going to have to deal with that, no matter if I am the best saved person in the world or the worst lost person of the world. I have a commonality of humanity that says we're all going to have problems in life. So I need to know and I need to ex express and I need to teach that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're going to have problems. But you have a way to work your way through the problems that are unique to being a believer. That now you are in the family of God. And that now you have an advocate called the Holy Spirit that will help us get through our problems. And this is why we need to mature in the Holy Spirit so that we can become a, an effective tool and an effective mouthpiece for, the, for God. And that it's not just in our mouth, but it's in our life. And as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to see the significance of why I need to walk in it and live it out so that my life is an example of how a person lives through a dark and broken world with the joy, with the peace, and with all of the goodness of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to try to speak about. Now, if you don't believe me about the fact that we're going to have problems when you are a saved person, let's go back to what Ananias told was told by God about Saul's life 
after Saul's conversion at the road to Damascus. If you turn in, at, to Acts 9 um, and look at verse 15, this is Ananias now was going to Saul to pray for Saul for the, so that Saul would be, uh, have his eyesight re restored after he was blinded by Jesus at Saul's conversion. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, he's talking about Saul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now this is a newly converted Saul who is going to be called Paul later in, the, in, the, in Scripture. Paul was going to have to suffer for the name of Christ even though he was God's chosen instrument to proclaim God's message to the world and ultimately be a, a, a writer of most of the New Testament. Wouldn't we think, wouldn't we, wouldn't we want to think that because of Saul's new conversion experience, now going to be a follower of Christ rather than be a persecutor of Christ, that God would say, Paul, you are going to have a great life, man. You're going to be set on high. People are going to listen to you. You're going to have an effective ministry. It's going to be good for you. You're going to have a great church. You're going to have a great following. People are going to just come to hear you speak. You're going to be an awesome person. Life is going to be great. But that's not what God said. Saul, Ananias, tell me, tell Saul, I'm telling you this because this is my chosen instrument, but I want you to know how much he has to suffer for my name. What was the fate of the disciples? What was the fate of most of the disciples? Philip was crucified in A.D. 54. Matthew was beheaded in A.D. 60. Barnabas was burned to death in A.D. 64. Mark was dragged to death in A.D. 64. James was clubbed to death in A.D. 66. Paul was beheaded in A.D. 66. Peter was crucified in AD 69. Andrew was crucified in AD 70. Thomas was speared to death in AD 70. And Luke was hanged in AD 93. Not one of those men that were the proclaimers of the gospel that were the beginning of the new church died a natural death. All of them were persecuted and died a horrific painful death. Only one man, John the Revelator, who wrote the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation, he was the only one that lived out a natural death and died a man of old age. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35 to 40. This is in the faith chapter, okay? This is the faith chapter that honors all the heroes of the faith. He goes on at the end of that chapter. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they may, might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Did you hear that? All these people that suffered and were persecuted, they were commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. So all these people that were promised greatness didn't receive it. Doesn't mean that God didn't give it. They just didn't live to see it. 
Verse 40, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they, may be, would they be made perfect. Basically, when we all get to heaven, when we all get to heaven and we come together, we'll all be made perfect and then will they all see that their, what they did, what they suffered for, what they were persecuted for was worth it. But through this life, they had many, many problems, many issues. If someone told these people then that were living for Jesus that life was going to mean better life when they followed Christ, <laughs> what would they tell you? Would we have been telling the truth to them? Absolutely not. They knew it. They went through it. That's why today, when we go into a, an easy believism on the gospel, and I'm not to say that the gospel isn't easy to believe, because the good news message is all about Jesus. It's all about receiving the love of Christ in our life to be saved. It's not a message of works. It's not a message of me having to earn my way in. It's all about me accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I just apply his sacrifice in my heart, and he forgives me of my sins. But if I don't, but if I don't focus, though, on the issue of why I need to be saved, I need to be saved because I'm a sinner that is doomed to die, not as a... I'm a man that wants to live a better life in this world. I have to have the proper perspective as to why I need Christ. I need Christ because I am doomed to die a horrific, eternal punishment. And when I recognize that Jesus is my Savior, it will give me an eternal life, but at the same time it may cause me to be persecuted in this life. If I don't recognize that fact... No wonder we have so many false conversions or we have so many people that will start in the faith and then fall away as soon as they experience the first problem because they weren't instructed and told up front what they're getting into. You're getting into a very serious battle for your eternal life. And that battle is going to cost everything that you have, even though it's a free gift, even though it's something you can't earn on your own. It's going to require everything of you to live it. And when we don't think it, of it that way, when we don't see it that way, we're primed for the devil's deception. We're primed to be deluded and deceived and to either living in a state of comfortable living but truly not Christ-likeness. Remember what we said at the beginning? How many really feel that coming to church and coming and getting into the presence of God is the highlight of your week? Remember that? If that's not the highlight of your week then maybe you're going down the path of, well, I just have to show up to church even, I don't, even if I don't want to. And I'll, I will just play the game of religion and that'll be good enough to get me into heaven. And there's many people that believe that that are sitting in churches today all around this country that are going to be part of that very unhappy crowd in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says, but I don't know you. But I prophesied in your name, but I don't know you. Why? Because you never really truly saw what, it was, re what, required, what was required of, to receive. And that is a full turning point of your life, a full repentance, full forgiveness, full turning back where you have made Christ the center point of your life, where that's all that mattered. We 
add to that so much. We add to that message so much that we, that we think it needs to be a, a message of prosperity and a message of goodness and, and, and peace. Well, yes, that comes, but that comes when I recognize that the reason I have peace is, is because I have eternal life because I have a promise of eternal life to get me through the problems of this life, not to deliver me from the problems of this life. And if, if we don't understand that basis, if we don't understand and grasp that, then the discussion on the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit really don't have any foundation. They don't really have anything that we can stand on if I don't recognize that my true meaning of being a Christian is not to give me a better life today but it's to give me a promise for eternity tomorrow that will last forever and ever and ever and to affect as many people around me that I can bring into that same eternal life with me. Mark chapter 10, 29 through 31, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what Jesus is saying here is that he's talking to his disciples. His disciples said, well, we've given up everything, and he said, I know that, but understand that I will restore back to you, I will restore back to you, but yet we saw the disciples' deaths were not natural deaths. So he restored back to them, but at the same time, he gave them persecutions. Why? Because they had a promise for the age to come called eternal life. So we're talking uh, eternal life versus eternal death. Eternal life versus eternal death. When I focus on eternal life, then all of the problems that come around me and all of the blessings that come around me will all continue to point me to the promise of eternal life not to the promise of prosperity while I'm living in this life. And if I can grasp that concept, it'll help me. Jesus said in John, 11, in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Our promise is that we will have eternal life if we accept Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16-18 Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all of the problems. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So when we can premise our salvation, premise our Christian walk, not on the fact that God is going to give me prosperity and health and strength and take care of all my problems, but that I am going, that he is going to supernaturally help me to work through all those problems with a promise of eternal life. When I can have that as my foundation point, now I can begin to understand what it's going to talk about, what we're going to talk about when we come to the fruit of the Spirit. I just want to make sure we're clear on that premise so that we don't um, have a misconception about what salvation's about. I want to be happy in this life. I want to have a good life. I want to have money in the bank. I want to have a nice house. I want to have a nice car. I want all that. But if I don't have it, 
if something happens where it takes it away from me, if I lose my health, if I lose a car, if I lose a husband or a wife or a child, or if I lose something significant, I can't make my salvation based upon what I've lost. I have to make sure that my salvation is based on God for the right reasons. My, the right reasons are not to give me what I want, but it's the promise of what he's going to give to me eternally for whatever, forever, so that I, I don't base it on what I see, but I base my life on what I don't see, and that is eternal life. With that premise, with that premise, we can begin to understand more and more what it means for the Holy Spirit to be living and maturing in my, in my life. See, God really wants us, as we move in the gifts of the Spirit, and as we move in, as a Pentecostal body, as we move as a full spirit, a full gospel uh, church, He wants us to know that we need to accept the call of Christianity in everything that it means. We just cannot believe, we cannot be a, a, a group of people that are high when things are good. We have to be able to be high when things are bad. We have to be able to believe that God has everything under control even when things aren't looking so good in my life. Yeah, he promises good things to those that believe in him. But he also promises that we're going to have persecutions and trials in this life. And we need to be able to accept both of those without condition. We need to be able to appreciate the good things that he gives us and we need to be able to live through the bad things that happen to us just like they were the good things. Is it easy? No, it's not. Is it important? Yes, it is. We must be prepared to live for God regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in because there will be good and bad times. And we can't say that God is with us when we're and, and that he's pleased with us when we're having good things happen to us. That happens so many times that I'm high when things are good. I'm healthy. I'm strong. Oh, God's pleased with me. I'm living a great life. But all of a sudden, the problems come. My back goes out. I have a problem at the job. I have a problem at home or something. And all of a sudden now, um, oh, I must not be pleasing to God. He must be angry at me. I, I must have sinned somewhere. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible does not say that you are pleasing to the Lord when you're healthy. And when you're sick, you're not pleasing to the Lord. He doesn't say that at all. So if, we need to, if, if that's the case, then now we need to know how do we walk as a spirit-filled believer in all situations. See, we are to allow the fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, to ripen in us or to come to maturity in us in all situations, in all circumstances. Good times, bad times, sickness, health, it doesn't make any difference. Wealth or prosperity, if we're going to be the Christian influence in the world that we live in, if we're going to be effective and productive in winning lost souls to Christ, then our fruit must be evident and ripe regardless of our situations that we live in. We, we cannot afford and we cannot be effective soul winners for Christ if we are living on a roller coaster of emotions. When God is good, I'm good. When I'm good, God is good. No, when, when I'm not good, God is still good. And I need to allow the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in my life no matter what my conditions are, no matter what my circumstances are. 
Fruit, if it's going to have any nutritional value, must be ripened first. So is fruit in our spiritual life. If we're going to have any effectiveness in our, in our world around us, the fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, when I get there, I'm just setting it up. <laughs> I'm just trying to set the, ground, the groundwork so that when we do get and start talking about what the fruit is, and how, that's why we, it has to be so, um, we, have to, we need to focus on its maturity, and we need it to be ripened in our life so that we can then be effective in the world that we live in because if I'm inconsistent here, then my witness is inconsistent and I'm going to be telling mistruths to the world and therefore we're not going to be productive in winning lost souls. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and it's right here in the banners. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we can read that, and it's pretty easy to read that. It's pretty re easy to look at those words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and say them, and, and it becomes a head knowledge where we have a superficial grasp of what that means. But I want to talk over the next few weeks about truly what are each one of these words. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Truly, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to be joyful? What does it mean to be peaceful? What does it mean to have patience? What does it mean to have kindness and goodness? So we're going to take some time over the next few weeks, and we're going to dig into these words. Let's start with love. Let's start with love. What does it mean to, to, to what is the love in regards to the fruit of the Spirit? Well, most of the times when we see love in, a, in the New Testament, it is defined as the word agape, agape love, which by definition is this. It is God's act of love for his people. And within his people, which is a strong, compassionate, unchanging devotion to someone for their good, even if they don't reciprocate back to you. Agape love is putting somebody else's needs ahead of yours. Meaning that God wants love between his children to be the same type of love that he has for us. Meaning that that I am to love my brother and love my sister with an unconditional love that doesn't expect anything back from them. Now, if I love you with a type of love with the intentional purpose of getting something in return, that's not agape love. That is a fleshly motivated love. That is a love that says I have an agenda that I'm going to do something for you, but I'm going to expect something back from you you as well to improve me that's not the love that we're talking about there are those kinds of loves those kinds of forms of love and even though they may act like love they may look like love at the outset that's not the true love because a true test of love is when you do something for someone and they spit in your face or they reject you or they stab you in the back what is your reaction if your reaction is oh, that hurt but I love them anyway that hurt, but I'm just going to still be who I am. I'm going to pray for him. That's agape love. But if your reaction is, well, I'm going to get that bugger back. Just wait till he gets, wait till I get an opportunity. Well, then that's not love at all. That's fleshly love. If I'm disappointed or if I'm let down and frustrated that my life wasn't returned, 
then it wasn't agape love. It was a man-made gesture of some kind of counterfeit love that was meant to look like love, but it was really supposed to manipulate that person in, into doing something for me that I wanted them to do. How many times do we see that in relationships with people? How many times are we guilty of that? Yeah. True love from God is a love that promotes the welfare of others at the same time, bringing me into a closer relationship with the Lord and with the person. That's true love. That's the kind of love that God wants us to have. 1 Corinthians is a love chapter. Chapter 13, uh, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It, is, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. No, you don't say, I do now. <laughs> because that's typically, the, best, that's typically the, 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 the passage we read at wedding ceremonies. But, but love is mo so much more than just to be read at a, a wedding ceremony. Let's talk about this for a minute. Let's, let's try to understand more about what love is. Let's read this verse very slowly, each word at a time. Love is patient. What is, love is patient. Love is not in a hurry to get something before it's time. Think about that. Love is not in a hurry. Love is patient. It's not in a hurry to get something before it's time. Now that's hard for us in our society today because we are in a hurry-up generation and we want everything real quick, don't we? We want, we want everything right now. We're not typically willing to be patient. Many applications of this one of them is in a marriage relationship. Young people, don't think that the person that you fall in love with while you're a young person is the one that you're to give yourself to until you have a marriage relationship with them. You see, love is patient. Love, isn't, love doesn't come on and say, if you love me, you will do this. I know. I know the games. I know the, what boys talk to girls about. They manipulate them. Girls are much more into the love aspect of the feelings of love, and boys are into it as a manipulative thing to say, he, they know, they know that girls are motivated by the love thing. If you love me, you'll do this. That's not love, girls. That's, what is that called? Somebody tell me, what's that called? It's controlling. What's another word for it? Lust. Yeah, that's called lust. It's not love. So love holds, waits, is patient, does not hurry into something before it's time. Love is also patient in that we don't jump to conclusions when someone might say something to us that might offend us. Love is patient, meaning that we give them the benefit of the doubt in that what they might have said might not really what, is not really what they meant to say. We don't rush to conclusions or read between the lines so that we think that person really wanted to offend us. Love says, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. I'm going to think it through. I'm going to think, wow, did they, really mean, did, they, did they really mean that? Is that what they really said? Love is patient. It doesn't jump to conclusions. Love, patient love gives, gives people many chances and many opportunities. We don't hold grudges. We don't harbor ill will against people 
that maybe have hurt them in the past. Love is patient. Love says, I'll give you another chance. Love says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to trust you one more time. Love is kind. Love is kind. It, is not, it never acts rudely or rashly. It seeks to justify one's accuser rather than bring a hard and nasty judgment against a person. Kindness reveals Christ-likeness to mankind so that we can be relevant to the world and show them that we're worth listening to. Hear this out. If a, if a kind person that is operating in the fruit of the Spirit with kind love, that person has an automatic sense of respect by the world that is unkind. If you're a kind person, people will listen to you. Rather, on the other hand, if you react just like they are reacting to you, if, if you react unkindly to them, and then come and says that, tell them that Jesus loves you, how, how meaningful is that comment? How meaningful is it when, when you do the same gesture back to them, but then turn around and say, well, Jesus loves you? I don't think that's very effective. We need to have a kindness that cannot produce itself. This kind of kindness we're talking about comes from God. It is, it is a supernatural kindness that flows through us as a sign of maturity in us that we're maturing in the fruit of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, love. Love does not envy. Love does not seek something that's not given to them. Love does not seek something that your neighbor has that you want. Love does not seek that, but rather love is a generous giver. Love gives generously to those that don't have. And love rejoices when it sees another person prospering. A good test of one's spiritual maturity is one, when one observes a friend or a co-worker or another person in church operating at a spiritual gift that you don't have or they're spending money that you don't have and you're either celebrating with them, thinking praise the Lord for them that they've given, or you're saying... God, why don't I have that? How come I don't have what they have? Well, love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not parade itself around others to put on airs with others with a turned-up nose broadcasting one's accomplishments. See, the natural man or our flesh, we want to promote ourselves. Man, if I don't do it, if I don't honk my horn, who's gonna? If I don't promote me, then who's going to? Boy, that sounds like a politician, doesn't it? But the spiritual man recognizes that his successes are not his. That the successes that he has come from God and that he's quick to give the glory to God, saying things like John said in John, in John 3, verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. Love does not boast, it is not proud. Love does not dishonor others or not self-seeking, is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Meaning that love is courteous, it's polite, it's seeking the goodness of others, and it's not easily provoked, and it doesn't keep records. Man, oh man. So easy, isn't it, to keep records and pull the skeleton out of the closet when you need to? That's not love. That's not love. Husbands, wives, in discussions, if you have a past offense that's happened and if there's been forgiveness over it, if, if there's been problems in the past and the spouse has said, I'm sorry, 
Forget about it then. Move on. Don't go back at the next convenient argument and pull it out of, the, out of the closet and say, remember when? That's not love. See, these are the Christ-like characteristics that are so badly needed in our society today. And if they're not seen in the life of a Christian, then where are they going to be found? If they're not found in a man or woman's life that's following Jesus, then obviously there is no such thing as true love. Because true love like this only comes from Christ. And we could talk forever. We could talk all day long. In fact, we're probably going to end pretty quick now because it's 5 to 12. And uh, we could spend the rest of the time talking about love. The next fruit we're going to talk about is joy. And we'll pick that up next week because we don't want to start because there's too much to talk about joy. But as we, as we conclude today and as we think about where we're going to go from here, and again, I think there's why we spend so much time or why we're going to spend so much time talking about the fruit and maturing fruit in the life of a Christian is because if we want to be effective gift bearers of the gifts of the fruit, then first we must allow the fruit to mature, I mean the gifts of the Spirit, then we must allow the fruit of the Spirit to, ma to be mature and to be evident in our lives so that we have relevance to the world. So that we aren't uh, clanging gongs and just loud symbols out there promoting our own strategy and our own agendas. Know that we are truly following Jesus, and the fruit of that, or the proof of that, is that they see me operating in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and so forth, right? So how do we know that? Well, we're going to talk about each one of these fruit. Next week, we're going to talk about joy, and we're going to hopefully get through these a bit faster. But it's important that we understand these. It, it, this is worth taking the time over, guys, because if we can understand this and learn this, then we can learn how to be tour in it. But if we just look at these as words that we don't ingest and don't digest and then actually insist in ourselves that we grow up in them, then we're never going to be productive. We're never going to be pleasing to the Lord clearly, and we're, not, and we're going to be at risk for our eternal life. Remember, Christ came to save us, not to give us everything we want in this life, but to give us a, an assurance and a, and, and a promise that we'll spend eternity with him. I need to keep my eyes focused on Christ. I need to keep my eyes focused above this world, above the problems of this life, and I need to then allow then my life to mature with my eyes focused on Jesus. And when I do that... I will have relevance and I will be productive in the kingdom. Fruit needs to be ripened before it has any nutritional value. So as your fruit is ripe and mature, it's able to, to nourish the lost world around you. And when the gifts of the Spirit are given to you, then you will have a positive impact because you're operating already as a mature believer. And when we have that basis, then the Holy Spirit can be strong and powerful and productive in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just love you. We thank you so much. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would allow this teaching. Lord, I pray that um, we would be strengthened in it and through it. Lord, we don't want to be um, negative at all. We don't want to be a, um, we don't want to be seen as a people that are always looking for the problems. We don't want to be focusing on the problems. But Lord, we have to recognize that when the problems come, that we rise above them, not by lifting my own bootstraps, but by me resting in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that you supernaturally then would bring things into my life. 
And so, God, I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we go over the next few weeks, that our hearts would be open to hear and that we would be uh, ready to receive what what it is that you have for us. I pray that you bless us as we go to our homes today. God, I pray that you just help us in the struggles that we have. I pray, Lord, that you would be king and master over all of them and that we we would trust you and ask you, Lord, for your mercies and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a great day today and be blessed in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.